0: Welcome to the Fierce Authenticity Podcast. I'm your hostess, Sharani M. Batak, and I teach you how to have amazing relationships by doing one simple thing. Dismantling supremacy cultures, internalized oppression, and conditioning. Be sure that you've hit subscribe to the podcast and come on over and join me in my private newsletter community where I have a collection of specially curated tools to get you started. Simply visit com slash connect to get started. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am super excited to share with you an episode where the roles are reversed. Today's episode is an interview that Nisha Modi actually did of me for her podcast Migrations and unfortunately Migrations is no longer releasing new episodes however with that said she gave me access to the recording so that I could share it here with you and our Fierce Authenticity community because the interview was just that freaking good. And so that's what you're going to hear today. And I think it's perfect timing as we are getting more and more ready for Fierce Authenticity Volume 2, Making Her Way Into the World. So with that, enjoy this episode and let me know what you think about it. Hop on over to Instagram at Shirani M. Batak, send me a message, and yeah, just let me know what this moved for you. So with that, enjoy this reverse interview.
1: Welcome everyone. Today I'm talking to Shirani M. Batak. Shirani is illuminating and dismantling the ways 5,000 plus years of trauma from supremacy culture has impacted our relationships with ourselves, with source, and each other. She's a relationship therapist, corporate consultant, author, speaker, and transformational leader. You can check out her books and podcast, Fierce Authenticity, at www.fierceauthenticity.com. And she'd love for you to connect with her over on Instagram at Shirani And all this information, I'll include in the show notes. So thank you so much for being here, Sharani. I just want to start out with what you're coming in with today as we record.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And I'm coming in with a head full of a lot of information. I am just at the tail end of completing the first draft of my manuscript. And I'm in the middle of a really massive coming out again, in a way. A year ago, I went through a massive, massive healing crisis, one could say. I went into a complete burnout, total system reorganization, and things are starting to finally make sense over the past year as I allowed myself to slow down and heal. And so I'm in the middle of this really big rebrand, streamlining things. So my brain is in all different areas, and I've got that little real, hey, how you doing? doing? I'm fine. I lied. I'm dying inside. Like that's what's in my head right now because I'm like researching also how can I get the message out there in a a more fun and engaging way. So really my head is all over the place.
1: Yeah, I hear you on that. As I've, as you know, recently moved into full-time entrepreneurship, doing coaching. My head's been all over the place too. And I think it's really cool how we both look at this healing work from an anti-oppressive lens and how we're also on the journey ourselves as we support others too. And one thing that always resonated with me once I met you like via Instagram is that you talk about this fierce authenticity, which is the name of your podcast, it's the name of your book, your first book, and your upcoming book, and which we'll talk about in a little bit here. But I'm really curious how you came to this name and what it means to you.
0: It took a really long time. The first versions of Fierce Authenticity, it went through so many iterations, that first book. It was healthy relationships start with a healthy you. And I'm like, that's the most boringest title in the world. Nobody's going to care about that. (laughs) And then it was soulful self-love journey. And I'm like, that's nice. But it still didn't capture the essence of what was really going on here. And I knew that a lot of what we were talking about was authenticity. It was like, how do we connect to the deepest, most inner part of ourselves? There's just layers and layers and layers of conditioning and stories and narratives that we have upon ourselves. And who are we when we peel back all those layers? Who are we at our innermost Mm -hmm. core? So quite frankly, Fierce Authenticity came to me as inspiration after I am trained with Terry Real of in Relational Life Therapy. It's a fantastic model. I love it so much. And he has a program called Fierce Intimacy. Mm. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I just felt into it. And I knew I was like, that's what it is. That's what we're doing here is really tapping into our Fierce Authenticity.
1: I love it because it just sounds so impactful. And I really do appreciate how it, you know, isn't so much outcome oriented, but you just feel that viscerally in your body. At least I did when I first met you. And I just really appreciated how also, I mean, when the more I spoke to you and I met you, like you also in your personality and your energy really embodied that feeling to me. Like it made me want to be like more fierce, which was probably something I only really maybe connected with Project Runway maybe, or America's Next Top Model, one of them, (laughs) with this idea of being fierce. But being fierce in terms of our inner selves really makes us think about maybe, like you said, the ways we have been conditioned and how narratives have been passed down to us that maybe we felt like we didn't have the permission to be fierce. So I really, really do appreciate that. And also, I appreciated being on your podcast and being a guest. And that was so delightful.
0: That was a fun episode. It
1: really was. And I remember one of the things that I started talking about was how as myself, as a daughter of South Asian immigrants, my parents immigrated from India, how in so many ways, while there is trauma that's passed down and a lot of internalized colonization, etc. My ancestors did not experience what maybe African Americans have And one thing that you brought up was that your ancestors were indentured servants and did in many ways experience certain things. Like while it wasn't slavery, there is a similar story there. And I'd love to hear more about this and better understand how you've unpacked this for yourself.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I am literally still in the middle of unpacking it all because as I've been doing the research for my upcoming book... Fierce Authenticity 2.0, Supremacy's Impact on Our Relationships. That's the working title right now. And as I'm doing the research for that, it's really uncovered a lot more layers of the story of the enslavement and indentured servitude of Mm. South Asian Indian peoples. It's like more and more information is coming. Like, Nisha, did you know that there was a time where South Asian Indians were actually enslaved and went through chattel slavery as well.
1: Oh, I did not. Wow. Interesting.
0: Yeah. The first record I came across that um, was by the Dutch in the 1600s. Mm. And so that was like 200 years before indentured servitude became more popularized. And really when indentured servitude became the thing was when they said, okay, okay, we can't do slavery anymore. That's bad. Okay, sure. We abolish it, right? In the British Empire. So what they did then is like, great, we'll just call them indentured servants. (laughs) And history is showing that The indentured servants, especially early indentured servants, were still treated in many of the same ways that enslaved peoples were. And there's accounts of people saying that they were still confined to their quote unquote master's compounds. There was still the brutality, the beatings and things like that. So I am still in the middle of unpacking all of that. When I said that I am in the midst of a lot of stuff right now, it's a work in progress, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that's the important part about this is it's not one and done, like it's a continual process, like there will be another layer that comes up. Earlier in my life, it was a very intellectual thing. Yeah, we were indentured laborers, whatever, that was like the story we were told, right? And then as I went through my healing of my own racialized trauma, that's when it all started to really come back into my awareness of, wow, yeah, this isn't much. I mean, it's definitely different, but it has a lot of similarities to the enslavement of Africans. And it was just mind-boggling. And I don't know if we had talked about this, but one of the similarities that I've seen between a lot of Indo-Fijian people, especially here in the United States, is that there's a very similar coping mechanism pattern as a lot of African-Americans who have enslavement as a part of their history. Mm. And when I started looking at the patterns, because my superpower is to be able to, like, see patterns, like kind of get these pieces of information and connect the dots to help that picture come through more clearly – And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is literally like such, what do they call it? Um, For the African-American community, they call it post-traumatic slave syndrome. Mm -hmm. Um, And some will argue, like Resma Menekem, that it is persistent. It's not over yet. And what I was finding was that there's a lot of similar characteristics, like a lot of alcoholism, a lot of violence, a lot of abuse. But, of course, because we're Indian, we don't talk about those things. Those things Mm -hmm. don't happen in our culture. So when I started looking at it, there's so many similarities. And then I landed in Milagros Phillips workshops and Mm. in her classes. And there little by little, I learned absolutely that racism and alcoholism and all that other stuff have all the same characteristics. And really, it's the way to cope with all of the oppression that we've experienced, continue to experience.
1: (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Especially if we don't unpack that and we don't face that. And like you said, it's persistent. I wouldn't imagine that unpacking that for yourself ended. There are so many layers that can keep revealing themselves and can even be like what goes into your third book, you know, no pressure. (laughs) But um, (laughs) so I appreciate you sharing more of that history with me because it's something I'd heard about, but I hadn't really dived into. But I think it really Speaks to how it's not a monolith. I also get curious, and I don't know if you have looked into this about how, you know, there's a lot of anti blackness in South Asian communities and how, with this shared experience, what that means.
0: Yeah, so I have some learnings to share about that. According to Milagros, the system of enslavement and thereby colorism was all based on actually the Hindu caste system. And I think that's what the book cast, right? Yeah. And I haven't read the book, but I've read some synopses and summaries, and, and that's the argument. Granted, I read some critiques that talked about how really the goal is to not be at the bottom rung, uh, and I'm, I haven't read the book yet, because really the goal is to not have any of those rungs. The goal mm-hmm. is to really treat one another as Humans and as equals. But what ended up happening is that whole caste system, it created the colorism system. And the darker you were, the closer you were to the savages, right? I mean, we're savage Mm -hmm. anyway because we weren't white and white Mm -hmm. was the standard. The closer you were to whiteness, so the lighter your skin, then the more you looked more like the white people, the colonizer, the oppressor. And in the context of here in the US with the enslavement of africans the children that were born of rape because the mm. plantation owners would rape the women they got more privileges oftentimes they got to work in the house instead of on the fields. And so that continued to perpetuate that colorism and the system that was there, that we're better than you and that infighting. And for me, I haven't done this research, but what I feel in my body when I feel into the energetics of it is I feel that for those of us, especially Indians, because we are lighter skinned for the most part, what I feel is almost like we're closer to the memyas. Mm. We're closer in color to them. And so if we just be quiet and do what they say, then we'll get more privileges with the memyas or we won't get in trouble. That's how I feel into it when I feel into the energetics of it. It also is a way to detach yourself like with a hatchet from our other siblings in humanity because Mm. we're better than them because we're closer to the white-bodied colonizers, but then on the other hand, we're treating them the same way that the white-bodied colonizers do to us, and so it really is this whole mindfuck that mm-hmm. the systems of oppression and how we've internalized it um, happens.
1: Yeah, definitely. And actually I'm not familiar when you said memya is what that is. So if you could clarify that for me and the audience, <laughs> I'd appreciate it. I'm like, wait, that it sounds familiar, but it's not like clicking in my head.
0: Yes. So the white women, memya, mm-hmm.
1: like a ma'am.
0: So uh, the Hindi, a lot of, you know, uh, Indians will refer to white women as mem or memya. Okay. Memya is almost like a way of being like, oh, like them over there, right? Like it's not, it's not saying yes, ma'am. It's mm-hmm. like that are kind of like making fun of it in a way, but not really.
1: Yeah, that's a lot. I actually have that book cast and it's on my to read list. And it is really interesting what those connections are, especially as we look at movements that mostly um, by lower caste and Dalits around South Asia, as well as in Western countries, around anti-castism and how important that is and how, yeah, it is connected to colorism, deeply, very deeply connected. I mean, I still have family that talks about someone being fair or light in relation to their (laughs) worth, you know, and it's just like really unfortunate, but it's a fact. It's a fact of the culture and the socialization as well. So I think this perfectly segs into your book. Fierce Authenticity 2.0, which I am super excited to dive into. It focuses on supremacy culture, and I'm just going to summarize what it's about from your Kickstarter page. So Fierce Authenticity 2.0, Supremacy's Impact on Our Relationship takes a look at how the larger sociocultural issues impact the stories we tell ourselves, including racism, patriarchy, white supremacy, and oppression, the science behind how these experiences get passed down, the impact of these experiences on our nervous systems, a breakdown of white supremacy culture and how it impacts our interpersonal relationships, as well as steps that we can take to heal supremacy's conditioning and break free from that day-to-day oppressive behaviors that we engage in within our relationships and probably within ourselves too, right? And so much of what you talk about aligns with what I do in my coaching practice, especially related to the nervous system and the ways that we're conditioned and systemic injustice. So I just love to hear how you Moved And I mean, you talked about, you know, what's been going on with you on your healing journey, but from going from the first Rock Fierce Authenticity book to 2.0, and I just love to hear how the book's going too.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I'm hearing it back and I'm like, wow, that's a lot that I am jam-packing into this book. No wonder my brain is all over the place and like still kind of digesting, integrating, and then spitting out the information again in a way that others can comprehend it. And So what I realized is when I wrote my first book, it was really based on how our experiences that, you know, the stories we have about ourselves, they're really based in what we learned in our childhood. Known fact, the field of psychology tells us that all the time. And mm-hmm. so it was really primarily looking at that. And at that point, I wasn't actively on my um, healing of my own racialized trauma and looking at how um, systems of oppression have impacted me, you know, because we want to deny that. It's really mm-hmm. hard to look at that fact. Um and the thing is, until we turn around and face it, um, it it's going to continue to run our lives, right? And so as I started going through my own racialized uh, or healing of my own racial trauma and, and connecting with all the oppressive systems and the ways that it's impacted me through the generations, I realized like, wow. So in the first book, it felt like not necessarily that I was putting blame on anyone, but it fell sh- of looking at the larger sociocultural issues, of how systems of oppression did that to our parents and their parents and their parents and their parents back through generations and generations. And so it just felt like the next piece of the work. So in Fierce Authenticity, the first book, which is Show Up, Be Seen, Get Love, it's really about practices to... Just connect with yourself, your authentic self, free yourself from those stories. And the second book builds upon that and is really okay, now here's where the stories actually came from. Mm. This is how the stories get passed down. And not just passed down from a behavioral perspective, but passed down on a Epigenetic level through our mm. DNA and the way our DNA adapts to respond to trauma, what genes get turned off and on based on whatever traumatic experiences that we've had to ensure our survival and how that impacts our nervous system and then how that impacts our thoughts and our behaviors and all of this. So one of my biggest pet peeves actually is when people talk about mindset work. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I freaking hate people talking about (laughs) mindset work because something about it always felt not right to me and it Mm -hmm. recently came to me earlier this year that the reason it doesn't feel right is because mindset work really just like focuses on you Mm -hmm. and doesn't think about what legacy are you leaving and what legacy are you creating for those who come after you Mm -hmm. um because mindset work isn't working with your nervous system to disarm it Mm -hmm. to constant triggers and constant threats
1: yeah and until we can
0: like recalibrate the nervous system like Mm -hmm. our dna will continue to pass down that information
1: yes Yeah, one thing I think about a lot is how do we move from generational trauma to generational care? And um, this healing of the nervous system and breaking these cycles is an amazing way to do it. I'm always so excited to share with people what this nervous system is and how it's affecting us. And then it has really helped me have more compassion for my mom, who I feel like has is a root of a lot of stuff that's happened with me, but also makes me realize like it's much deeper than her. You know, my mom, I often talk about how she was born the year of the partition. And while it's not something that she remembers, it feels very symbolic to me and it feels very momentous in a way. And, you know, I've asked her like her parents' experience and she doesn't really know. And I think, like you said, we, are just taught as a culture to internalize and many cultures, just internalize it and cope and deal because that's what their nervous system probably had the capacity to do. And I too had issues with mindset. I do see its power, but I also think that it's such a privileged thing to to talk about. Like, you know, to say someone that has all this trauma that they're carrying can just change their mindset and pull themselves off by their bootstraps is so harmful. It's one thing of many, many things that in a way need to happen first, you know, in terms of that regulation, in terms of attending to our bodies. So I really appreciate that. And, you know, I'm really curious, um, like you said, that, you know, the first book kind of left off with how we can break free, but not including what the stories were that came to be. So what was that moment for you or series of moments where you kind of were like, I need to heal. I need to look at my racialized trauma. Is it something that happened over time? Was there like an inciting event?
0: Yeah, the inciting event was actually the murder of brother George Floyd. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until just over a year ago that I really was confronted with all of the ways I have been impacted by systems of oppression. Because you asked, what do you think it is between South Asians and anti-blackness? And well, another part of that is the model minority myth, Mm -hmm. right? That, oh, we're just better than them. We're educated. We can do the things. They're just lazy, right? Like that's another narrative that's been passed down so having internalized like all these stories what actually ended up happening is my husband is also Indo-Fijian and Mm. when lockdown first happened with the pandemic when California, well our county Santa Clara County and then California first shut down they put some curfews in place and my husband actually was triggered into the trauma of Mm. curfews that were instated in Fiji after the coup in the 1980s And I was like, oh, okay, like I didn't think too much of it. And then after the murder of Brother George Floyd, when San Jose, where I live, when they put another curfew in place because of riots that started when police shot at peaceful protesters, they did another lockdown, another curfew. And that's when it hit me in my nervous system. Mm. I remember clearly we were sitting to dinner one day And it was this beautiful, warm June evening, and I was so excited. We're having our dinner. We're having a great day. And I said, hey, babe, let's go for a walk after dinner. Let's take the pup. Let's go for a walk. And he's like, yeah, that sounds good. And then all of a sudden, my whole body just froze, and even my breathing became like labored. And I was like, oh, my God, but we're under curfew. We have to go now. We have to go really soon. I don't want us to get in trouble. Like, What might happen if we're out there, right? Like, And then that's when it clicked in my brain, like, oh my gosh, this is it. It's time to face the ways that I have been impacted.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. When you were talking about that, I started thinking about how the murder of George Floyd activated so much. It activated a lot of performative allyship, the creation of anti-racism committees to show that we care. But I also think, like in your case, it really came to a point of doing the inner work. And I think it's really important that we don't dismiss that as much as some of it might be performative and that the there are structures around us that continue to perpetuate it just as they because they exist. That as us as individuals, we can do the work of looking at our lives from a systemic point of view And how the more of us do that, we could start really examining and questioning these patterns in these rules that we've lived by, like from these stories we tell ourselves. And we really can make a difference as individuals. Like I do think that systemic change needs to happen, but the more people bring stuff up and start examining themselves, that can potentially push for systemic change and potentially shift power dynamics. And I think that that's really incredible. And when you said the curfews and how your husband was activated and then you were, it really made me think about choice and how so much of what affects our nervous system is affected by the choices we have or don't have especially the choices we don't have and how when you're marginalized or even as a child, you have less choices, right? This is the school you're going to. This is the house you're living in or the the space you're living in. These are the people who are taking care of you who may or may not be your biological parents, right? Those are less choices. And as we grow up, we do start to have more choices. But then when they are taken away from us as they were in the curfews or with lockdown it can be very triggering. And I just wanted to bring that up and see what you had to say about that. Because even from a trauma-informed lens, offering people choices and consent, it's, it's beyond sexual conduct, right? It is something that is part of all of our lives.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And when I'm listening to you, what I'm hearing is something a little bit different that I want to touch on, which is the decontextualized trauma. That's what I'm thinking of as I hear you is about decontextualized trauma. And I think there is a way to loop this into your question about consent Mm -hmm. and choice. Me and my husband, we both know the story of the coup. He was actually old Mm -hmm. enough to remember it. I was too young to remember it, but my body remembers because the body remembers, because the nervous system remembers, because it's a threat to your survival. And so you have to remember what Mm -hmm. it feels (laughs) like, right? And so because I know those stories, I knew what was happening both for him and for me. And had I not known that, though... It would have been a decontextualized trauma where I was having this response but didn't understand Mm. why I was having such a strong response to the curfew experience. And then when you take that and put it into the choice and the consent and kind of zoom it out to that bigger question, there's a lot of people, I mean, because really a part of Fierce Authenticity 2.0 is looking at how the systems of oppression began long before Euro colonization. They started back really from my perspective in ancient Sumer with the ancient Sumerian civilization. More than 5,000 years ago. Like we're talking over 5,500 years ago. And that's all been programmed into us. Like we know instinctually it has just gotten programmed into us that there are certain behaviors that really indicate a threat to us. And so really the goal is to control people. And how do you control people? You keep their nervous systems dysregulated. So when you put in a curfew, sure, on the one hand, you can say it's for safety reasons. And there's also a flip side of that. Safety for who and from what? (laughs) If people are burning down your town, there's probably a freaking reason they're burning down your town. If people are like robbing Target and all these other really big corporations, there's probably a reason that they're getting robbed. Robbed in the same ways that you have robbed bodies of culture for generations.
1: So, you know, one thing that you just mentioned was in terms of looking historically and keeping people, especially those who were lower class level or maybe more racialized, in terms of structure by those who were in power, it was like, who is who are they keeping it safe for and who was safe? And that made me also think about the nervous systems, not just of those who are marginalized, but those who are privileged and how that is conditioned. And that's something I've thought about a lot about how nervous system healing has to be for all of us and how conditioning makes us think that certain people are threats based on their class, race, skin color, gender, et cetera. So I'd love to hear what you think about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree with you that this is an everyone. It's like a human problem. It's not just a problem that marginalized folks have to, to deal with, but white bodied individuals also have to do the work. Because yes, that dysregulation is in all of us. The thing is, I'm going to share a story. It's a story um, from Resmaa Menakem's work. I read an article of his where he spoke about a young boy going to a lynching. Boy's boy really young and he sees like everything in his body tells him this is wrong. Like we're not supposed to do this to other people. This is not okay. But his dad is saying, no, this is what we do. This is right. This is how we're supposed to do it. And of course, I'm butchering the story. I'm just like giving the gist. But so the boy sees his father there, and the boy sees the sheriff there, and the boy sees the pastor there, all white bodied individuals, right? And they're all okay with what is transpiring. Well, now we've just created some of the greatest dysregulation in this young white-bodied boy's system because the human part of him knows we don't do this to each other, that this is not okay. Because inherently as humans, we know that we're not supposed to hurt one another, especially in such murderous ways, right? But everyone around him is indicating that it is okay, like these authority figures that it's okay. So the nervous system is all sorts of confused and has no freaking idea, but because it's so confusing, it creates so much dissonance within us that it's easier to just shut off the part that says this isn't okay And adapt to the part that's like, okay, well, if everyone's doing it, this must be fine. And that's where the disconnect happens. But that information is still living in your nervous system. Because that type of traumatization, secondary trauma does the same thing as primary trauma. Just witnessing such a traumatic thing will also do a number on your on your nervous system. And so, yes, absolutely. And now what we've got is generations of that. Granted, I'm giving an example from the 50s and 60s, but when we go through time, that's been around for a really long time. And that's continued to get further and further pushed down in the nervous system of white bodies, but it's still there and it's unaddressed. And it needs to be addressed.
1: Yeah, definitely. And again, it's child who doesn't have cho- as many choices and he won't be part of the group unless he agrees and just shuts up and, you know, does what they say. So there's that relational part of it too, that really tells us like, this is what we're supposed to do though. This person witnessed this. So yeah, it's a lot of mixed messages within a culture that has absolutely like certain dominant structures. So yeah. Thank you so much for talking about that. I remember that from grandmother's hands. So as you were saying, And I was like, oh yes, I totally remember that. And this is why we all need to do this work, but there's so much nuance to the work that we have to do. And that's where we have to unpack these stories and not assume that, okay, well now, you know, we're all equal after MLK did the march and all that stuff that kind of tends to be this story that is just completely untrue. I mean, you know, you and I are both in large cities, myself, Los Angeles, you're in San Jose, that are maybe more progressive or liberal in certain ways, but there's still so much disparity and there's still so much racialization and income inequality. And that is completely indicative of how this, this lives today, just on a demographic data level, but that also is reflected within the body. And yeah. And one thing that I think about, I'm also remembering what you were talking about mindset is how The nervous system work that I've done, I always tell people your body knows before your mind does. So that's why another thing where it's like mindset work has to include your body's responses with your nervous system and to ignore that. And if you don't see any like transformation in you or it's quote unquote not working, it's like, well, you got to get to the root first, you know. So I really appreciate you sharing that example and all the knowledge and wisdom you've shared yeah, I feel like we covered so much. Is there anything else that you want to add about your book? When's it coming out? What's happening with that or anything else?
0: Just to get the book. It's going to be amazing and do the work. It's really just so powerful and for me, this work is a practice and a pr- process. And the first thing is we have to have awareness. So I talk about the 3 A's and I talk about them in my first book. And really it's the framework that I'm using for this second book is a lot of times we try to come up with solutions without fully understanding and feeling the gravity of a problem. And so solutions don't last. And we wonder why we keep having the same thing and it's like playing whack-a-mole and then like it just pops up in different places. And what we need is first that really deep awareness of, wow, what is going on? And so that's the whole first part of the book is looking at the science, the neuroscience, the epigenetics, the history of supremacy culture, and tying it all together to how does that impact us in our nervous systems, and then the second part of the process, that second A, is about acceptance. And not acceptance in the like, oh, it's okay, I condone this behavior, but acceptance in terms of we are not rejecting the reality of what is. And I used to hate the word acceptance. And when I went through the dictionary, I, it's like, of course, I hate the word acceptance. Everything says that it's okay. Until I finally got to the antonym and was like, oh, whatever you're not accepting, you're rejecting. Now it makes sense. And so the awareness, awareness, the acceptance helps us to no longer reject what we have just come into awareness with. And when we come from that space of going through all the feels, you know, Brené Brown calls this the messy middle, when we go through all of that, from there, the actions, the solutions, they naturally fall out. And so really... When I said earlier that we have to turn towards it and actually face it and look at it in order to be able to fully comprehend what is going on um, and how it's showing up. And not just how it's showing up in terms of systemic and institutionalized racism and all those systems of oppression, but really this book is about how have we internalized it within ourselves. And so when you talked about like taking that white supremacy culture characteristics and applying it, because that was written for like organizations, how does white supremacy culture show up in organizations, Well, when you look at it and being trained as a relationship therapist and and doing a lot of trauma work, it's like, wow, all of these things are things that I'd already been talking about in my relationship therapy work. Like when we get into patterns of perfectionism and imposter syndrome and better than, less than, those are all those characteristics of supremacy culture that we have internalized and continue to oppress ourselves with and then project it outward and continue to oppress others with because then you're not doing it right or you're not doing it perfectly or I know how to do it better. I'm going to tell you how to do it. And that all comes from that same supremacy culture conditioning place. And so when we can actually see and understand that this is how it shows up on an everyday level, in our interpersonal interactions with one another. Because I know there's a lot of people out there who are like, what can I even do? This is such a big problem, you know, and then we go into the immobilized response, we go into the freeze and we don't and collapse and we don't know what to do. Well, guess what, you can start by growing an awareness of what it is and what it looks like because I am trained as a social worker. Systems is my jam. And I know that what is reflected in the macro is what's happening in the micro. And so if we can heal the micro because the macro is made up of the micro, if we can heal the micro, which is our own personhood and the way we interact with the people in our lives, whether we like them or not, because we're not going to like everybody. (laughs) And we're not saying that this work is about liking someone. It's about how do you treat them when you don't like them? And not just that, but like, how can we have a greater understanding? And when we're falling into these patterns and and what's driving this pattern? So as the micro changes, it will be reflected in the macro. So systems out there will change once the people who make up that system change. This is an internal, I often talk about it on my podcast as a Trojan horse, like this is how the work has to be done in a really sneaky way from the inside out because it's not going to come from the outside in. It can never come from the outside in, quite frankly, and that ties to your question about consent and choice. Putting it from the outside in is another oppressive practice, but when we do it from the inside out, that's us making a conscious choice to do our part to heal the crises that we see in humanity today.
1: Wow. Thank you. So I just want to really quick ask you, when you said from the outside in, that can be oppressive. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like in terms of Cause when I think of the outside it, I think of like systemic injustice healing. And to me, it's like, I feel like that's so powerful with us empire and systemic racism and capitalism and the history of colonialism. Like, you know, I, I, I as one person, I'm not going to dismantle that, but is that what you mean? Or do you mean something else?
0: Well, first in the day-to-day, like if I'm trying to tell you to change, like that's like the everyday stuff, right? Like me telling you what you need to do in order to change. That's not coming from you internally and intrinsically. That's coming from my perceived idea of what it's going to look like for you. So thereby, I know better than you and I'm telling you how you need to do it. Now, when it comes to the system itself, You can change all of the systems that you want in the world. It will not stick and it will not make an impact if the people do not have the capacity to operate within that system. And so when I talk about it's even oppressive coming from that way, it's not going to (laughs) happen. It's just really not. I don't even have the words to describe it. But even that is because if the people aren't ready for it, and not that like everyone has to be ready for it, but if enough of us are ready for it, the system will collapse upon itself because enough of us will have shifted the way we operate. And last night I was thinking about it. It's like we pull our plug out of the mainframe of supremacy's computer. And the more enough of us do that, the mainframe has nothing to operate on.
1: Wow. I really like that metaphor. That metaphor has really helped me to kind of visualize things, so I appreciate that. And yeah, I agree that we could change all the things. Like, I often think about, like, homelessness. That's been a big topic in Los Angeles lately with them basically recently ba- essentially making homelessness illegal. Just providing housing, yes, that is an excellent answer, but it's not the only answer. We also have to consider the mental health of people who have been unhoused for this long and all the mental health issues that go along with that and what that does for, I mean, that is literal survival. So yeah, that affects the nervous system. So how are we also addressing that in addition to providing housing and food, right? So it has to come from multiple spaces. And I think that's really important um, to talk about. So thank you so much. This has been such a rich conversation and I can't wait to, put it together. And thank you listeners for being here. And I'm going to include all the information about Sharani in the show notes. And yeah, thank you so much, Sharani, for being here.
0: Thank you, Nisha. It was my honor. And you know what? I have to just say one more thing. As a social worker, I've done a lot of work with unhoused homeless folks. And when you go back to oppression and choice and control, I have heard directly from so many unhoused individuals that the reasons they don't say yes to housing is because in the housing, there are so many rules and restrictions and they don't get to live the way that is authentic for them. So that is why so many of the unhoused will choose to remain unhoused it is so circular and cyclical because are we actually asking them what they want and need you know you talked about community care earlier are we actually asking the community or are we coming in and saying this is how it needs to be because that right there is that supremacy culture's sneaky oppressive conditioning coming out to play so i really felt like i had to say that before we go today And again, just thank you so much. And I hope that listeners, please, please check out my work, the new book. I know you're in your podcast app. So please search Fierce Authenticity in your search bar of your podcast app and hit the subscribe button because my podcast is my platform. That's where I share all of my current thoughts and teachings. That's where they are.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Sharani. And so grateful you said that one last thing, because that is so important to talk about. So thank you again. Listen to Sharani, go follow her podcast. It's awesome. And yeah, thanks. Listening back to this conversation brought up a lot of feelings and thoughts for me. It brought up hope. It brought up imagining so many possible shifts in the world. It brought up how power and love can coexist as we move through the tentacles that try to hold supremacy culture over us. I am so excited for Sharani's new book, so keep an eye out for it.
0: I want to take a moment to honor and acknowledge the amazing support team that helps make this podcast possible for you. Starting with Diego Velazquez, our podcast editor and the talented artist who created our custom music. Ana Olvina, my wonderful assistant who creates all of our beautiful graphics and the transcript of every episode, which you can find over at www.fierceauthenticity.com. Biana Sandich, who writes our amazing show notes and does it so well that I bet you couldn't tell it wasn't me the talented Jillian at Epoxy Studios, whose photography is our cover art and pretty much every other curated image that you see of me on social media. My husband, who puts up with me when it's 11.30 p.m. on a Sunday night and I'm like, hey babe, I gotta record a podcast episode, like right now. Is that okay? My higher power, whose divine wisdom flows through me To bring these messages to you. And last but not least, I wanna thank you, my listener, so much for listening in. If you'd like to join the podcast support team, some ways you can do so are by rating and reviewing the podcast, sharing it with everyone you know, and if possible, making a financial contribution through the link in the show notes so that you too can be part of the team elevating this podcast and making it possible to bring to other listeners like you. I'm sending you so much love, and we will be together again soon.